Well, I've never sat in front of a choir before. So when I was, we were singing that first song, I thought, wow, my voice has really improved. <laughs> I should do that more often. And I have to uh, confess, I, uh, I heard about chicken pies, and I didn't know what they were. Uh, this is, this is um, part, of, part of my still uh, learning about things that are more southern culture coming from the north. So I had to ask Alice what they were, and she explained you know, what they look like. What's, I said, is it like a pot pie? And she said, well, there's no vegetables. So, so it sounds good, but I, I, I need to make sure I get on the list for next time. So. Well, I'm really happy to be here with you today and um, am looking forward to what I've prepared to share with you. So why don't we um, read the passage of Scripture and pray and we'll begin. This comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne, to the lamb, be blessing, honor, and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, thank you for inviting me this morning. If you had any role in it, and if you didn't, then you can uh, feel good about any response. You can shirk any responsibility for anything I might say. Um, I've actually known about you all for a pretty long time. Uh, Scott and I have been friends on social media uh, in various forms, blogs, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, all those things, for probably almost 10 years so I've known about Deep River Friends and uh, have thought of you and thought of Scott's ministry here often and always thought Deep River Friends, it sounds like such an amazing name for a meeting. And so it's so wonderful to be here and to meet you and to see, see that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am the director of uh, the Friends Center at Guilford College. I'm new. I'm sure many of you or all of you know who Max Carter is. He retired, and I haven't really replaced him, but I'm doing, you know, no one could replace Max, but I'm, I'm in that role now. And before that, my three children and I, my wife, all lived in the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, where I pastored a small Quaker meeting there called Camas Friends Church. 
So I want to speak to you this morning about the book of Revelation. But as with any time I talk about this subject, I need to give you a little disclaimer. A few years back, I was spending some time in discernment around what I was going to preach next. And I remembered hearing Quaker uh, author Parker Palmer say at a retreat I was once at that he never writes books about things he knows, only about things that baffle him. What fun is it to write about stuff that you know so well you could do it in your sleep? Where is the life in doing something that doesn't involve any risk at all? So as I thought about what to preach, I asked myself, what is the thing I'd like to preach on the least? And I wish I wouldn't have asked that question, because I knew before I even finished asking the question what the answer was. Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book that, in my opinion, has been misused and abused. And I felt like it would be a challenge to approach it and give some positive light to it. And maybe even if I was able to do that, would I be able to help others see past the sort of the reputation, the mass media representation that it has with all the books and the movies and the fears and suspicions around getting chips in our foreheads? In fact, and this moves us closer to what we're going to talk about today, it seems like the book of Revelation has been one of the most often used biblical texts as a means for creating an us and them, for villainizing some while protecting a certain few. In particular, reading in this particular reading of the book of Revelation, God is a violent God, one who is not to be crossed, and for some, even crosses into torturing enemies. This framing of Revelation is about some winning and some losing, and somehow we always find a way to tell the story so that whoever is telling it is on the winning side. And whoever is the enemy du jour will certainly be on the punishing side of this violent God. No wonder then that the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche considered Revelation the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. And others have called it a script for a horror movie. So you can see why I was baffled by the book of Revelation. But does the book of Revelation really paint God as violent and punishing, demanding retribution for his enemies? Or is there another way to read the text that has been lost in all of these attempts to rally against the other? So after realizing that I had to preach on Revelation due to my own bafflement, I spent time reading and reflecting on the key themes and am now convinced that Revelation has something to teach us today. I do not believe that Revelation has anything to do with predicting end times and has everything to do with how small minority communities of faith survive the onslaught of empire. Let me say that again. I don't believe that Revelation has anything to do with predicting the end of the world 
and everything to do with how small minority communities of faith survive the onslaught of empire. It gives them tools for how to survive in a world where everything around them is in chaos, where their lives are in danger. John is writing to seven small communities of people struggling to survive this time of the Roman imperial or the Roman Empire. They had no political clout. They were made up of men and women, old and young, rich and poor, clean and unclean, Jew and Gentile, and other people marginalized by the Roman Empire. Revelation shows us that this battle is waged between a violent Roman, uh, a violent god of Roman imperial religion, which is painted as a beast in the book of Revelation, and who was responsible for crushing Christians and other uh, religious groups of the time. And, on the other hand, the nonviolent religion of Jesus, pictured here as the Lamb of God that was slain, who was himself the target of the empire's violence. Now, this image of the Lamb of God that was slaughtered, as we read about in, uh, in chapter 5 of Revelation, it actually appears 28 times in the book of Revelation. 28 times. It says, the, the Lamb that was slain, the Lamb of God who's worthy. So I believe that this picture of the Lamb that was slain is to be the key interpretive image of the whole book. Interestingly, the book of Revelation then outlines this clash between these two religions, the religion of empire and the religion of the Lamb that was slain. The religion of empire is rooted in power and violence, in fear and suspicion of the other, and the destruction of its enemies at all cost. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that the religion of the lamb that was slain is something vastly different. It's rooted in love of neighbor and enemy, courage, patient resistance, sacrificial love, nonviolence, and as the Quaker Bayard Rustin would say, angelic troublemaking. So I want you to shout out, this is a participatory I want you to shout out if you know why this particular image of the lamb might be significant. What do we, where else do we know about a lamb? Passover, okay. Abraham and Isaac. The shepherd looking for the lost lamb. Any other references you can think of? Those are all good. What about Matthew 25, the, the sheep and the goats? We have that sort of interplay. Of course, Jesus, right? It's an important one. <laughs> so in the, in the times of the Old Testament, during the Jewish Day of Atonement, there was a goat that was offered for the people's sins. 
But it's important to note that the goat, now I didn't write that to rhyme, but it's important to note that the goat was never killed. It was never killed. New Testament scholar Marcus Borg writes, The sins of the people were symbolically placed upon the goat, which was then driven into the wilderness. This happens in the book of Leviticus, if you're keeping track. The goat was a sin bearer, but it was not killed. It wasn't sacrificed. Indeed, to have sacrificed a goat, a scapegoat, laden with sin as a gift to God would have been sacrilege. Now, to take this into our day, in this idea of scapegoat, a scapegoat is a, a person or a group singled out as, a, as the cause of trouble and is expelled or killed by the group. Social order is restored as people are, are content that they have solved the cause of their problems by removing the scapegoated individual, and the cycle continues. Scapegoating serves as a psychological relief for a group of people. Does that make sense? So think about this for a minute. We have a lamb that was slain, functioning as a scapegoat who was used to calm angry mobs that we are familiar with at the end of the Gospels, right before Jesus is crucified. And it is this scapegoat that is the central image John gives his readers in the book of Revelation to shape their entire religious and political imagination. I think that's pretty interesting. Here is what I think is going on. Revelation is revealing how this scapegoat mechanism is a pattern in the world. The religion of empire needs, in order for it to function properly, a scapegoat. Empire needs victims to create its own identity and to maintain social order. Even more powerfully, as the Gospels and the book of Revelation both reveal, the scapegoat is innocent. So while there may be some psychological relief for expelling the scapegoat, the underlying conflict is not resolved and the cycle continues. So I wonder, does this begin to shed any light on issues we face in society today. Scapegoats are used to deflect the deeper issues upon which we do not, as a society, want to face. And don't we use plenty of scapegoats in our world today as psychological relief? Don't we have scapegoats in our own families? Our parents, our spouses, our children can all function in this role. What about at work with bosses and coworkers? It is easy to cast the poor or the uneducated or the other political party as the real problem. I wonder what the relationship is between the Lamb of God that was slain 
and refugees expelled from their own country. What does the Lamb of God who was slain have to say about immigrants that continue to be put in the crossfire of our political discourse? What does the scapegoating of the Lamb of God have to do with scapegoating LGBTQ persons in North Carolina, in Mississippi, and across the land, in families, in churches, in yearly meetings, and in our political discourses? What does scapegoating have to do with racism in this country? James Cone, in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, argues that, the lynch, that lynching was itself a form of scapegoat mechanism at its most horrific in this country and reveals the very clear but often unoverlooked relationship between the African-American experience in this country and the Lamb of God who himself was lynched. Just like in the 1988 film, They Live. Anybody, anybody ever seen the 1988 film, They Live? Okay. It's a rather obscure reference, which is something they tell you to not do in preaching school. But I can't help it. <laughs> so in the movie, They Live, um, I think it's Roddy Piper. Is that how you say his name? Roddy Piper. Uh, puts on a special pair of glasses. And whenever he wears these glasses, he's able to see reality. He's able to see uh, the greed and the corruption of people and of advertisements and all sorts of things. So just like that, Revelation is an unveiling of the destructive mechanisms that are at work underneath underneath the surface of our systems. It tells us that there are two systems at work one that relies on antagonism and the expulsion of a scapegoat in order to keep social order in balance, one that's rooted in scarcity, fear, suspicion, and whenever desired violence as as a means of maintaining control, and that there's another way, a way of life that begins by situating this image of the Lamb of God who was slain at the center of who we are and what we do. This way of life is rooted in sacrificial and unconditional love. It turns strangers into neighbors. It needs no victims. It needs no scapegoats and no enemies to exist. When God, when, when, when Genesis says that the world was created, it is not created over and against something else. It's created out of nothing. It needs no enemies, no antagonism to exist. And this way is a way that begins and ends in nonviolence because it understands that all of creation, all of creation that's singing in Revelation 5 at the end of that passage, they're all the handiwork of God. Can you imagine what this way of life looks like? John in chapter 7 of Revelation calls it the multitude of every language and every nation and every people. And every ethnos, every, every race gathered 
Martin Luther King Jr. calls it the beloved community. George Fox and early Quakers called it gospel order. And Jesus himself called it the kingdom of God. It is a community without antagonism because Jesus, the one who was slain, who rose and who is present with us, teaching us and guiding us today, draws us into this life where we can truly embody the beloved community here where no enemy is needed in order to live as one. Thank you, friends.